So begin reading in verse 13 to connect these together. So Revelation chapter 14, beginning in chapter 13, the word of the Lord. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his circle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The word of the Lord. Happy New Year, the wrath of God. There's a, it's a great subject to start the new year. We've all started, uh, well, a lot of people do New Year's re resolutions. I have resolved not to do such a thing. Um, but we should all resolve this year to make our faith sure um, that we would work out our salvation in many myriads of ways with fear and trembling. But the wrath of God used to be a major subject of sermons in bygone era, um, eras, times, but then something happened. Um, Christians demanded a kinder and gentler Jesus, and the church was more than happy to um, deliver such a Christ. And some preachers may have helped this along the way by doing a magnificent job in preaching on the wrath of God, but not doing such a good job preaching the grace of God. So the Bible proclaims both of these things, you know. And so as much as the Bible teaches something, we need to be aware of it. Um, it's our theology which transforms our lives. Not just the things that, that we do, but the things that we believe and understand about, about our God. But the Bible does proclaim wrath. It also proclaims grace. It proclaims justice and it proclaims forgiveness. And you see it clearly, most clearly, right there on the cross. And it's a cross that a lot of people, even many non-Christians, might even wear on, as jewelry. Um, you have a, a cross, the great symbol of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ for sin. We also see people doing things with symbols from God, such as the rainbow. Although they change the color somewhat, it is a symbol of the protection of God from the wrath of God. But these things are reminders that we serve a holy God. 
Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, we need to be aware that um, if you're saved, you are saved from, it's a great salvation, as Hebrew says. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And the cross, being that great symbol of the wrath of God, poured out on Jesus Christ for sin, so that instead of the elect of God bearing the penalty for their sin, which they can never repay for all in eternity, the righteous sin-bearer, God the Son, bore the church's sin on the cross. And we have to keep this primary in our, in our thoughts, our minds, and our preaching. Jesus took and drank the cup of God's wrath there on the cross, in the garden, if this cup might pass. And it couldn't. No other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. And then there on the cross, God was able to justly give us grace and mercy. So just as Adam's sin was accounted to us as ours, Jesus' righteousness was credited to us as ours through those who have faith in him, those who believe in him. But not all believe, and therefore not all are saved. So there's a question that we must always be willing to ask ourselves as we contemplate these things. And that question is, well, what about me? What about you? Are you saved? Are you sure of your salvation? I've been to, I mean, maybe we've done it here, but I've been to churches um, before, and you get the impression that all the bad people are out there, that we need to, you know, huddle up because of how bad it is out there, um, ignoring the fact of how bad it is in here. So that we still need the grace of God. We still need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So as Martin Luther said, if you don't question your own salvation from time to time, I question your salvation. And what he means by that is not that we don't believe in a gospel that's strong enough. Not that we don't have enough faith to understand that we are saved and they have an assurance of this salvation. But if you look at the way you think and live and the stuff that goes on in our hearts and you don't wonder from time to time, how can a sinner like me be? be saved, then you don't understand the greatness of the gospel because it's too good to be true. And yet for the believer, we know it is. And that's all that Luther was talking about because Luther had his own problems. He was, uh, without getting into them too much, but you know, if somebody's going to beat on themselves about their sin, it's going to be Martin Luther. And so that's why when he understood the gospel, that the righteousness of God comes from faith in Christ alone, it opened the world up, literally, through him, through the gospel. So it's those who beat themselves up the most that once they finally grasp the gospel, fall at Jesus' feet, kissing him and not ceasing to wet his feet with our tears. You don't stay there because at some point you recognize forgiveness. At some point you recognize the gospel. At some point you get up and you're praising him and you're living your life. And then life kicks in. And we have to be careful that we do not forget our Lord's. Why God gives us the Lord's Day to gather together. He gives us a Bible. He gives us sacraments to 
encourage one another, all the more as we see the day approaching, to not get into a world and think that's all there is. This is the first day of the week. It sets the tone for the rest of it. Jesus Christ raised from the dead on Sunday, on this day, the Lord's Day. So this most important question, am I saved, begins with people having asked themselves a question first, is there really a God? So how do you know there's, there's really a God? And there are many arguments, logical arguments for uh, why there must be a God. The, the two that I believe to be the most strong, the first is the, from the Latin word ex nihilo nihil fit, with it, which is out of nothing, nothing comes. So if there was ever a time when there was nothing, then there would always and only be nothing. So there has to be some eternal thing. I sound like William Shatner when I say that something must exist eternally. And so when you say, well, okay, fair enough, it must make sense. And then as we reason back to what we see, as we have the book of creation that God has also given us, um, we call that natural revelation. We see things as orderly creation. It's a huge creation. There are things that we learn about God as we go further and further out. We recognize we'll never know and explore the depths of creation. As Carl Sagan, I think, in one of his books said, it's a mighty a lot of it's a, it's a lot of extra space for there to be nobody else out there. Because he says there's got to be aliens because there's a lot of stuff out there if there's nobody out there. It's like God's there. <laughs> and maybe this is what we spend an eternity checking out and investigating and seeing or whatever. And if you go microscopically we're even learning it's like you can continue to go smaller 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 with God and you never plumb the depths so we recognize there's a creator there's a guide the moral bent of the universe the fact that we recognize in our natures that there's good and evil points to the existence of a guide but then second is is the Bible true People might admit there's a guide and has certain characteristics, but is the Bible true? And that one has to be answered by you yourself in your own head and your own heart because there are thousands of logical reasons to believe the Bible's true, but the Westminster Confession even teaches that even though we have all these reasons logically to believe the Bible is true, the only true, the only real way to know the Bible is true is through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. If you believe the Bible because the church tells you to believe the Bible, then you really believe in the church. If you believe the Bible because you believe your logic, then you really believe in your logic. So you have something above Scripture. But God has not set it up like this. God has set his word up in such a way that the Holy Spirit itself, um, the Bible, is a, here's a cool theological word, word, autopistic. Pistos is the Greek word for faith. Auto means it's self-running or something. Autopistic means it's self-faithing. The reading of God's word, the Holy Spirit uses that to produce faith in the word of God. So it is a work of the Holy Spirit to believe the Bible because in the Bible we learn about our sin and we learn about Jesus Christ, the cure for our sin. So if you don't believe it to be true, 
the Bible, I would ask you to think about the Bible's teaching on sin and death and the fact of a cursed world and your own moral failings and ask if you don't sense your own need for a Savior. Do you not feel the draw of a, of a heavenly Father creator speaking to you his words and calling to you to turn from the world and yourself and to turn to him? And you'll first recognize his voice in your heart, and then you will see the Bible is that revelation of himself by which he most clearly and definitely speaks. And next is not just believing in God and believing the Bible to be true, but to trust the word of God, to follow it. And my grandfather gave me a, a Bible when I was younger. I was, uh, I don't remember how old, I was very young though, and I wanted one of those newfangled NIV Bibles. And I'm sure he, with great consternation with his King James Bible, was like, Ugh. he's like, well, if he's going to read it, he probably talked to his pastor, I don't know. But uh, he gave me an NIV that I still have, and it says in it, read it, love it, live it. And um, it's a good word. It's what we're to do. We're to, to read it. We're to love it, and we're to live it. You can't love it if you're not familiar with it, and you're not going to live it if you don't love it. But without faith, you're not going to do any of these things. But we are to be in, in his word. Most Christians who struggle with their faith, most Christians who struggle with their faith, do so because they're not in the Bible. They don't know the Bible. Biblical illiteracy is rampant these days. So if you don't know your Bible, but you do familiarize yourself with any kind of other social media or people who talk or just listen to what a particular church or pastor says, you got nothing to figure out what do I, what do I compare what I'm being told with truth. What's the truth? So we not only believe the Bible to be true, we believe the Bible to be, here's a good word, we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. <laughs> perspicuity. It means um, that you can actually understand it. You can, people can read it. And, and you can believe it, you can understand it for yourself. We have teachers, we have helps, we have all these things. There's no reason at all for a believer. I don't care how little education you have. Even if you can't read, if somebody can read it to you, you can, you can listen to it. You know, there are, there are um, blind people who, who listen to the Word of God and, and even in Braille and, and different things like this. So there's, there's no sense at all in us not being in the Word of God, understanding the Word of God and believing in the sufficiency of the Word of God, that you don't need extra revelation. You don't need another message it's sufficient in all things having to do with faith and practice the word of God so we should be in it it tells us how we worship that we are to worship but many people who struggle aren't in the Bible and sometimes they're in the Bible but they're not in church which is being disobedient to the Bible if there's a church you to be in near you and sometimes they're in church but not in the bible and we call uh, these types of things means of grace god tells us where to go to get more of him dr kelly's saying was 
the Spirit blows where He will, but He has told us where the windy places are, where to go to hear His voice. So first, is there a God? At least spend some time in consideration of that if, if you don't believe that to be so. And I'm not just telling you, you know, the, in this room, but who knows? I mean, there are people who've been pastors of churches and you find out they never really believed. So maybe you don't really believe. Or, or maybe, you know, people listening. Or perhaps you talk to people and you need to know how do you talk to people about these things. And second, is the Bible, is the Bible true? And there's an eternity that's in the balance, there needs to be some consideration spent thinking about these things. And then, am I saved? And first, am I saved from what? And from the wrath of God, Revelation 14 teaches that it's a very real thing, and that it's a very great wrath. All of the Bible teaches this. If we look quickly to um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, so if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Beginning in verse 34. Acts 10, 34. Peter said to him, Anus, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise. That's chapter 9. I was like, okay, that explains why I wasn't sure how to pronounce that name. So chapter 10, verse 34, there we are. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So forgiveness is only received through his name. And he is the judge. And we had to do away with the silliness of saying that God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves to hell. God doesn't punish anybody in hell. We punish ourselves. There's a little tiny little bit of sense, the truth in that, and the fact that you deserve it. Your own sin does send you there, but it's the, the holy God that actively sends people to hell actively pours out his wrath it's his wrath that is poured out on sinners which is why only God can save us Jesus teaching on salvation and judgment as a harvest as we see in Revelation 14 we can see clearly in Matthew chapter 13 so look at Matthew chapter 13 
beginning in verse 24, 13, and 24, this little paragraph. <clears throat> so he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he was sleeping, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did we not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he explains the parable at the beginning of verse 36 of the same chapter. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ. So he's clearly teaching and explaining it. And actually in verse 44, if you're still in Matthew 13, there's another little parable. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field when a man, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. So what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the gospel should be to us. It should be, we would be willing to lose everything to keep this, to keep the gospel. It's that valuable. It saves us. From the wrath of God and not only saves us from the wrath of God but causes us to be rewarded with his riches and in Matthew 25 verse 31 Matthew 25 31 the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, now don't you notice this, you're going to hear, this is used all the time, this as if, the liberal church will use this passage as if this is the gospel, which is 
when the king says to him, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. That's the gospel, according to the liberal church. Go online. You, can, you, can, you don't have to visit a church like that. Go to some liberal church. I don't care to necessarily call them out right here, but, I mean, it's pretty easy to see. Um, any denomination with the word united in it pretty much is liberal. Um, uh, PCUSA churches, I guess I'm naming them. <laughs> but, yeah, listen to them. Um, and you might stumble upon one that's actually preaching the gospel. Unlikely. What you'll probably hear is you need to go out, you need to do justice. You need to feed people. And none of this stuff is untrue, but the call is then, and therefore you will be saved. No, <laughs> that's not what this is saying. And so it's just saying whenever you did it, that if what happens in this judgment is there are sheep and there are goats, and they are separated. And then there's rewards that are given out. It is not the four there is not saying you're a sheep because you did this stuff and if you continue to read and we've talked about this several times you'll see the sheep are said anytime which we just read whenever you did this stuff the least of these my brothers you did it to me then he looks at the goats and says whenever you didn't do it okay not saying you never, they never did it but whenever they did not do it you did not do it into me and therefore, they're going to be falling to judgment. And then was the righteous are saying, when did, we ever do, when did we ever do that? And the unrighteous are like, when did we ever not do that? So think about that. What kind of people would stand before God and God say, whenever you didn't do this for the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it for me. And they say, when did we ever not do it? I mean, that sounds like social justice warriors to me. You know, they're out there doing it. That's all I do is give my life over for the poor, the dejected, and all these things. And it's good to do these things, but it's not the gospel. Because whenever you fail to do it, you will be judged. And as a believer, and we talked about this last time, it's like as a, as a non-believer, without Christ, we're, as un, we're unholy. And the demand is for holiness. As a believer, we understand even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Yes, but when the grace of Christ and the, the goodness of God is applied to even our filthy rags, he cleanses them and he calls them beautiful and he crowns them with his crowns. So that even our works, which at best fall far short, but as believers, they're blessed. They're good in Christ. And that's what the gospel is. And so part of the gospel is, well, the gospel is faith through Christ alone. In James 2.14, he'll say, you know, what good is having faith without works? You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. But I'm not judged by my works, is what he says. He goes on to say, justified. So you see, a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works. James clearly says it. But what he means when he's using in context the word justified is proving his claim to be true. So if you want to say, if somebody stands up and they say, you know, I am, well, there's some, something I was watching recently that was talking, this guy claimed to be, oh, it was Downton Abbey. Oh, how about that one? Watching Downton Abbey. So anyway, um, my wife makes me do it. The, um, 
<laughs> it is my choice at times. Um, but this guy claimed to be, what was the game? Cricket? It looked like baseball, but it wasn't. Mosley. Cricket. <laughs> the whole time, he's like, he knows all about cricket. He's the cricket player, and they're going to play cricket. He's telling everybody how to play cricket, and he's got all the things about cricket, all the rules about cricket and everything. And then they go out to play, and he can't play cricket. And his father's out there going, yeah, he never he always talk about it, but he never could play it. And so you can say I'm the best cricket player in the world, but you get out there in the field, it, are you really? I can say I am the best chef in the world, but if you eat my food and it's terrible, you're going to have to wonder. I can stand in front of the judges. That used to be my favorite sermon analogy when it was on popularity. It's like, I am the best singer in the world. <laughs> it's like, no, you clearly are not the best singer in the world. So we may claim to have faith. And what James is saying is, then why are you living like this? So that our faith should make a difference in the way we live our lives. It should. Those things don't save you, but the gospel and your, your faith should be adorned by these workings and outworkings of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer. So that's where Luther says, if I'm going to examine that, I'll look at that and go, well, I'm not even sure I'm saved. I don't see good enough works. He says, yeah, <laughs> preach the gospel to yourself. But it should make a difference. The ungodly will be judged without mercy and grace, but they will be judged fairly. But the believers will not be judged unfairly because God is not unfair. They will be judged in Christ. And we will be able to receive his mercy and his grace. So there are times when we might scream even ourselves and cry out, to God for justice. Well, we recognize, even in ourselves, the need for judgment. And there will be people who don't think it's right of God to allow things to happen that are bad, and yet we ourselves, we even charge God with injustice when we see things happening. And the God of the universe will set all things right. So we know that there needs to be a time of judgment, that there needs to be a setting of evil right and the day is coming and just to close back at Revelation chapter 14 he says I look behold a white cloud seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown that's Stephanos a victory crown that's golden uh, Amy wanted a gold necklace for Christmas she picked it out <laughs> it's sterling silver coated in gold so it's a lot less expensive but she knows this we didn't give this away uh, but I went I was like I'm, I'm going to buy her a real gold necklace. I ain't letting her buy no, she ain't getting no. So I looked at the gold necklaces. It's like, woo, okay. How much is 75% off? <laughs> woo, all right. How much is this one? And it's like, I asked the lady, I said, what's the difference? Because it's plated and coated in gold. What's the difference between this and the gold necklace? She said, see this necklace? I said, yeah. She says, I've had this for years, and I hardly ever take it off. Even when I'm taking a shower, it doesn't tarnish. It doesn't grow. Like, this one's going to tarnish. She's going to have to replace it. And I'm like, well, for $12, we can get one every month like that for the whole thing. But it's the thing with gold. Gold is different. And this gold is unperishable. It's this victor's crown. It's this golden crown on his head. And this is Jesus Christ 
on the white cloud. We, can, we don't have time to go into different reasons why it's clearly Jesus. And he has a sharp sickle in his hand. There's a debate as to is he, is he reaping uh, with his sickle um, ungodly people as well. And, I've, I've, and it may well be, but I, I do think because of in context, I think he is talking here of the righteous. So we're being reaped. Uh, put your sickle in and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat in a cloud, swung his sickle <coughs> into the earth, and the earth was reaped. But then another angel came out of the temple. This is where God is in heaven. And he too, now there's another angel with a sharp sickle. And then another angel comes from the altar. And we saw earlier this is where the prayers of the saints are coming from. And the fire on the altar is being cast to the earth. It's the power of the saints working on the world and the angel had authority over the fire he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle and he said put your sickle in and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for the grapes are ripe and the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of God's wrath and the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle at 1600 stadia apocalyptic literature i think you get the picture you can see the massive amount of judgment that's taking place horses swimming in this 1600 stadia that's about 200 miles don't get called up into the distance it's the number 1600 which is four times four times ten times ten four always represents the universe of the earth ten is perfection a complete number and so you got the completely judged of the earth and a stadia is, is similar to, it's, a, it's just a, a similar to miles in the way they would judge it. But the, the horses would be swimming in this. But the Son of Man coming on clouds of victory. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, it's yourself, are you saved? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? But we're also called to live like it and to love him and to tell others about Jesus that unless you know him, then what can we say? So we have a coming year full of possibility. So let the Lord find us faithful and brave, gracious and kind, looking to him for our meaning and for our purpose, thankfully acknowledging that he would have every right to trample us underfoot and to put us into the winepress of his wrath. But for Jesus, Christ for us, and earth us for Christ, his cup of the new covenant, by his blood poured out for us, his blood more precious than any ocean of blood, his blood shed for me. Do you believe that? Then join a church. One that has shepherding elders who will have responsibility over you and to you. One who has deacons who care for the, the church in lots of different ways. Participate fully in church. Read your Bible. Pray your Bible. And encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching and it does approach every day it gets closer I occasionally get phone calls or messages from different people that are some are strong Christians in the Bible some are 
they seem to be believers, but they don't really go to church or anything, and they're just like, man, it sure is looking like judgment. And I'm just like, good. <laughs> you know, you want to, I'm not saying we're at that point yet, but it's getting closer every day. It, it may, the Lord may tarry for another thousand years. It, he may be before in the sentence. Who knows? But what we do know is we are to be found faithful. We're to worship Jesus Christ. We are to be excited that no matter what might come upon the church this year, and who knows? You don't even want to say what else could happen. <laughs> don't put the Lord thy God to the test. The church gets through it. Church remains strong to the end. Through many trials, through many through persecution and death and pain and struggles and times of of um, great blessing we're to remain faithful trusting in our good savior and calling to the world to hear what the angels have sung what we proclaim what the bible proclaims that jesus christ is god he gave himself on the cross for our sins and he died there absorbing the wrath of God for all who would believe in him and he was raised on the third day proving that his death was sufficient and he said it is finished so that all who trust in him for their salvation will never perish will shine like the stars in heaven for an eternity exploring the depths and, and height and width of the love and grace and glories of God that we can't even begin to imagine but for those who are outside there is weeping and gnashing in teeth. There is an eternity spent not just apart from God, but under the wrath of God. And it is good, and it is right, and it is holy, but God says he takes no pleasure in the condemnation of the ungodly. In other words, he's not up there wringing his hands and laughing evilly over what's happening to the ungodly, but it is right. Our only hope is not justice, but grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. That's the message that we have before a watching world. And your sin that people see is a great opportunity for you to preach the gospel because you can say, I know, thank God I'm not judged on how terrible I am, but I do have a heavenly father that loves me and he will discipline me to help me to be a better person in this world, to be more Christ-like, that I might shine, that my good deeds may shine and point to my Father in heaven. At this particular point, I will quote my father who said, use me as an example of what not to be like. <laughs> so what I would say we need to say is use us as an example of what it's like to recognize our sin, to repent, and know we have a loving Heavenly Father who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, who loves me the way I am and loves me too much to leave me this way. He is a good God. He is in control of the world. The church is the only hope for this world. Be the church. He gives us himself to charge us up and send us on our way. So we know he is with us. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you. Be with us. Bless us as you've promised, especially as we come to your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.